Well, good morning. I think you can probably do a little better than that. Uh, good morning. I knew you could do better than that. that was, see, you proved me right. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you. I was really um, honored that, uh, that the leadership would ask me to come and, and kind of help out a little bit for the next few weeks while, um, while Clint is on sabbatical. And before we get into the scriptures this morning, which is what I'm here to do, uh, I just wanted to commend the leadership here uh, for taking this step. Uh, of providing this sabbatical uh, for folks who are civilians, um, which is most of you, uh, it's impossible to describe the the level of pressure and um, burden that pastors deal with uh, and, and have to process. Uh, it's just one of the most demanding, challenging um, positions that anyone could ever have, and and as a result of that. Uh, a lot of pastors struggle, a lot of pastors burn out, a lot of pastors fade away. I read a survey recently where it said 50% of pastors in America have thought about quitting this month. Uh, now that's shocking, or at least it should be. Uh, 80% of pastors feel like being in the ministry has been harmful for their families. That kind of stuff should get our attention uh, because it shows just uh, the, the weight of responsibility and how difficult it is to know how to wisely manage that. And so for, for um, a church to provide this kind of a resource for refreshing and restoration and, re and spiritual renewal uh, is just really a wonderful thing. And, and I just want to applaud you for doing that. And uh, I know it makes things inconvenient and you end up with people like me showing up and stuff. But uh, I, I know that... Um, for the long term, it can be a great, great benefit. And so I just, again, appreciate the fact that you're willing to invest like that in Clint and, and in your, your pastoral team and so forth. So thank you for doing that. And now we'll do what we're here to do. So turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. And I'll, the only reason I'm doing Philippians 3 is because Tom told me I had to. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, um, we're just trying to kind of keep your series going that you've been in in Philippians a little bit. And uh, we're going to pick up today in chapter 3, verse 12. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to try to cover all the way through verse 17. Um, just to kind of get us going, uh, many of you will remember the, the viral videos that came out some months ago and just mobbed YouTube with hits. Uh, of of the, the guy being dragged by his heels off the airplane. You remember seeing that? As somebody who flies regularly on that airline, I have to tell you, it terrified me uh, because I was wondering if I was going to be the next guy dragged off by his heels. Um, but following that event and all of the backlash and all of the, the stuff that came out of it, one of the things that in today's world naturally followed was all kinds of stuff on social media about it or as I like to refer to it, anti-social media uh, about it. And uh, one of the things that popped up on, on social media was a meme, uh, and it was a picture of like a state trooper who has pulled over this car, and the state trooper is, is leaning into the window to talk to the driver that he's just pulled over. And the state trooper says, we can do this one of two ways, the easy way 
or the United Way. <laughs> well, United Airlines, um, not United Way, that other thing. Um, there are two ways we can do this, the easy way or the hard way. And, and there's a sense in which in a much more infinitely significant way, there are two ways to approach living the Christian life. The easy way and the hard way. Now, in essence, there's really no easy way, but there is an easier way. The hard way is the way of law. The hard way is the way of law. And the way of law is all about following the rules and keeping the regulations and doing the ritual and, and checking the boxes. And it's all about human performance. It's all about human effort. It's all about what I do to try to get God to like me. That's what it is. And it doesn't work, which is the whole purpose of Philippians 3. Because in Philippians 3, earlier, Paul gives his pedigree. He gives his pedigree, you know, the tribe of Benjamin and circumcised the eighth day and according to the law, blameless. And all of this stuff that he had going on in his favor was trying to relate to God based on law. And his ultimate conclusion is it doesn't work. Because we can't relate to God based on our abilities or our effort or our performance. We can't get there from here. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom. Now that's strong language because the entire reason for existence for Pharisees was to relate to God based on law, based on keeping regulations, based on doing stuff. And Jesus' point is the same as Paul's point. It does not work, and it never could. It never did. The other way to approach living by faith, the other way to approach relationship with God is by grace as opposed to it being by human performance, instead of that, it's based on God's provision. And because it's based on God's provision, it's not made possible by what we do, it's made possible by what He did and what He does. And that's relating to God based on grace. And Paul's going to talk about that this morning. He's going to talk about it in verses 12 through 17 as he talks about what it means to grow in grace. Now, what's interesting about it, what's so interesting about it is that in, the, in, in my translation, in, the, in verses 12 through 17, the word grace never appears. And yet none of this makes sense unless it's understood in the context of grace, which is why it follows Paul's statement on why law doesn't work. Paul says, here's all the stuff that I had going for me, and it was useless, it was worthless compared to the surpassing knowledge of Christ. Now here's the path that God has put me on. And even though he doesn't use the word grace, it is completely and totally about grace. So let's look at it. Let's look at verse 12. And as we begin in verse 12, he starts off with an admission of need. And this is, this is so fundamental to what grace is all about. Because grace is about providing for us what we can't provide for ourselves, which means it's providing for us what we need. Grace is about providing for us what we need. 
And Paul starts off by talking about, here's what I need. Notice verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. If you're comfortable marking in your Bible, you might want to circle the word perfect and draw a little arrow out to the margin, and we'll talk about that in a minute. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. See, if, if you're looking at this from a law-based mentality, you say, well, look, he's laying hold of it. He's going for it. It's human performance. Wait a minute. No. He says, I was laid hold of this by Christ. This is what Christ is doing in me. Yes, I participate in the process. Yes, I participate in, in this whole growth thing that needs to take place in my life. But it's not about what I do as much as it's about what he does in and through me. Because he's laid hold of me for this purpose. What purpose? Well, to become perfect. To become perfect. And that word perfect automatically makes us stub our toe. Because we're not comfortable with that word. When, when we think of perfect, we think of something that's flawless. When we think of perfect, we think of something that is an absolute good and we think to ourselves, how could we ever be that? We even say stuff like when, when we mess up and somebody calls us on it, we say, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah, nobody's perfect. So how do you become perfect? Well, first of all, you've got to understand what perfect is. Perfect is not absolute good. Perfect is not flawless. Perfect is not without error. Perfect is based on a word in the Greek which means to complete to complete. It was actually a word that was used to speak of an Olympic athlete who had run a race and come to the conclusion of the race and they had completed that race. That's the idea of it. it, it it's to be the finished product. It's to be the completed thing. That's the idea of the word perfect. And that's why one of the key words for this morning is a word that we often connect to that idea, and it's the word mature the word mature. The difference between the heart of a child and a heart of an adult, hopefully, is maturity. That through growth and through time and through experience and through the things that God does in that person's life, they grow from immaturity to maturity. They grow to become something of a finished product as a human being. That's what maturity does. That's what complete means. So when he says, this is the goal, to become perfect, he also says, but I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Now, <clears throat> when he was living under law, when he was trying to keep the rules, he looked at himself and says, according to the law, I was flawless. I was blameless. I was getting it done. I was, I was getting it done really well. but it didn't accomplish the goal. You can check all the boxes. You can do all the stuff. You can fulfill all the activities. You can memorize all the, the ideas. You can do all of that stuff, but it doesn't get you where you need to be. It doesn't get you here to completeness, to being spiritually mature. The other word that we would use for it is to be Christ-like. 
That's what he's calling for. To be perfect is not to be without flaw, but it is to be increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's why, and here's where it connects to grace. In 2 Peter 5, or excuse me, 2 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in grace. That's where it comes from. That's how it works. We grow in grace. We don't grow purely out of effort, purely out of religion, purely out of performance. We grow out of grace. <coughs> Sorry, I brought a cold back from Asia with me. Now, when he stresses this idea in verse 12, that I have not already attained it, nor have I already become perfect. That's the goal. That's what I'm aiming for, but I'm not there. Commentaries have kind of wrestled with, why does he stress this so hard? Why does he push so hard on the fact that I've not obtained it? And there are two possibilities, and maybe neither one of them are right. Maybe a third one that nobody's thought of yet is the right one. But one of the possibilities is that the reason Paul stresses the fact that he hasn't attained it yet is because there were some people there who were teaching what today we would call sinless perfection. Teaching sinless perfection, that is, that when you come to Christ and your sins are forgiven, you're automatically made perfect and you never sin again. I remember hearing uh, J. Vernon McGee um, back in the day. Uh, some of you old-timers will remember Dr. McGee, and some of you youngsters won't, sadly, but that's okay. Um, but McGee said he was, he was up there he had just finished preaching. He was standing down front talking to people, and, and he, he had talked about the fact that all of us sin, even as believers, all of us sin. I mean, John in 1 John says, if anyone says that he has no sin, he's a liar and deceives himself, right? So we still mess up. We still make mistakes. We still sin. And if you think you don't, the only one who's fooled is you because everybody else can see it. And McGee was standing down front, and he said he just finished preaching on this, and this guy comes storming down the front, just face beat red and angry, and he comes down, and he said, I'll have you know, I haven't sinned in 10 years. Well, probably he just did, but that's another matter altogether. Dr. McGee, being the wise individual that he was, looked at him in that southern drawl and said, would you mind if I checked with your wife on that? <laughs> Sinless perfection is not a reality in this side of life. Yes, when we see him, we will be made to be like him, for we will see him as he is. But that doesn't happen now. That happens later. Now, we are subject to failure and brokenness and sin. And as a result of being being subject to all that stuff, Paul wants him to make sure that he's exhibit A. I've not attained this yet, and by implication, neither have you. So we're all, we're all in this together, this journey of grace and growth. The other possibility, as we know from some of Paul's other letters, is that everywhere Paul went, there's a bunch of Judaizers that were following him around. Judaizers were Jewish individuals who had come to Christ but believed that the way to, to grow to spiritual maturity was by keeping the law. And the whole point of the book of Galatians is it doesn't work. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit that you think you're now made perfect in the flesh? Paul asked him, it, it doesn't happen. It can't work. It doesn't take place that way. 
And maybe what Paul's doing is he's saying, I've got this much. You are the man. Thank you. I was just sitting there thinking, boy, some water would be really good. Thank you, man. Um, what Paul says is that this doesn't work. And so if the Judaizers come along and say, yeah, you've come to Christ by faith, but you've got to become mature by works, it's impossible. It'll never happen. This is the need. The need is to grow. The need is to become Christ-like. The need is to have this process of development taking place in our lives so that we become a finished product, so that we become someone who resembles Jesus in this world. That's the idea. So watch what he says next. Notice how he pursues it, verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, see, notice again, he stretches, stresses, I'm not there yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, this is the focus of my life. He says, this is the one thing, one thing, one thing. I mean, it's like on a baseball team, if you have a guy who does nothing but bunt, there's one thing. He spends all his time focusing on that one thing all the time, all the time, all the time. Paul says, here's my one thing. Now, in, in, in the scriptures, anytime you see this phrase, one thing, and it appears a bunch of times, actually, in the Bible, anytime you see this phrase, one thing, it completely talks about where someone's focus is. Where's your focus? Where's your focus? Where's your focus? What are you locked in on? In Psalm 27, David says, One thing have I desired to dwell in the house of the Lord. The one thing, my, my great focus in life is worship. Jesus encounters the rich young ruler and he says, One thing you lack get rid of all your stuff. That's what's holding you back. One thing. When Jesus confronted Martha about her complaints about Mary, Jesus says one thing is important. Mary's chosen that one thing. Where's your focus, Martha? Over and over and over again. The blind man that Jesus healed, the man born blind in John chapter 9, when he is confronted by the religious leaders about who did this and who they were and all this, he says, one thing I know. This is what I'm hanging my hat on. Once I was blind, now I see. <laughs> one thing. One thing. Where is your focus? That's your one thing. That's your one thing. Now what's interesting, because Paul is Paul, and, and, and he must have been a terribly difficult person to have a conversation with, because Paul says one thing, and then he does three things. I mean, this is Paul. This is Paul. Notice if you would back at the very beginning of chapter 3. In my translation, the very first word of Philippians chapter 3 is the word finally. He says finally, then he writes two more chapters. This is how Paul's brain works. I mean, he's playing three-dimensional chess, and I'm trying to figure out checkers. But this is the way his mind works. He says one thing, but he, he does three things. If you remember eighth grade English back in the day when you had to um, 
diagram sentences. Anybody remember diagramming sentences? You remember that? Try Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 11. It will drive you mad because it's all one sentence. This is Paul. And so when he says one thing, what he really means is three things. But by giving us three things within the one thing, he speaks to the totality of this growth process, the totality of what grace is trying to accomplish in our lives. And the three things that he talks about are forgetting and reaching and pressing. Forgetting and reaching and pressing. Those three things are the one thing. Forgetting the things that are behind What's that mean? Well, I think he's talking specifically about this stuff earlier in the chapter of all of his pedigree and all of his resume and all of that stuff about the Pharisee of the Pharisees and according to the law of blameless, all that stuff. He said, I got to forget that stuff. That's not what's happening now and that's not what will get me where I need to go. But then he says, reaching forward. I've got to leave the past where it is, but I'm reaching forward to what God has for me in the future. And in the meantime, between the past and the future, there's the present where I'm pressing on toward the goal. Pressing on toward the goal for which I've been laid hold of. That's the whole point. This is the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. This is what He laid hold of me on. This is what He has called me to. This is what His purpose for me is. And this is where my focus needs to be. Therefore, one thing I do. I press. I look forward. I forget the past. And in His provision and in His grace, I let Him do His changing work in my life to make me like His Son. Because that's the point. See, the ultimate point is not the reaching and the pressing and the forgetting. The ultimate point is this is the goal. This is the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're aiming for here. That's what it's all about. That's why we're doing this stuff. So he says, verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, there's that word again, mature, complete, Christ-like, the finished article, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now, two words here are connected, and you've got to connect them together for this to make sense. The two words that connect together are attitude and standard. If you have this attitude... If you have a different attitude, live by the same standard. There's a standard, and that standard applies to attitude. Now, I have to tell you, I spend 99% of my life working with words. And there's some words that I really like. I like the word ilk. It's just kind of a cool, funky word, you know, people of your ilk, You can look it up later. Um, I love the word ilk. Um, I I love, I think I might have even told you this when I was here last time, I love the word curmudgeon. I just think curmudgeon is one of the coolest words. I tell people my goal in life if I grow up is to become a curmudgeon. 
And the people who know what it means kind of look at me askance. That's another great word, by the way. They look at me askance and they say, why would you want to be a curmudgeon? Because a curmudgeon is just a, a, a grumpy, nasty old guy. See, I said, well, I don't really want to be that. I may be well on my way to becoming that, but that's not really. I just like saying the word curmudgeon. It's one of my favorite words. It's a great word. I love the word. There are also words I don't like. One of the words I don't like is the word attitude. And the reason I don't like the word attitude is that in my growing up years, my dad used that word directed personally at me 11,412 times. He was constantly saying, watch your attitude. From my earliest memories, one of the things I remember about myself is that I've always had the gift of sarcasm. It's a spiritual gift, by the way. <laughs> Properly wielded. Uh, it's a, yeah, probably not a spiritual gift. But, uh, so, you know, something would happen, and I'd make some, I mean, even as a kid, six, seven years old, I'd make a smart remark, and my dad, watch your attitude. And when he said, watch your attitude, what he was really saying is, he was watching my attitude. I grew up hating the word attitude. And then all of a sudden, I come to Christ, and I find out that the Bible is all about attitude. Now, this is really frustrating, because God's watching my attitude too. He says, have the same attitude. If you've got a different attitude, you've got to conform to the standard. What is the standard for attitude? Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. <laughs> That's the gold standard for attitude. And so what just happened is my dad was really big on attitude, and the Bible just trumped that times 10 by saying the standard. Remember, Paul says... Live according to the standard. What's the standard? The standard for attitude is the attitude of Christ. And what was the attitude of Christ? Well, he follows that statement in Philippians 2.5 by talking about selflessness, humility, self-sacrifice, absolute commitment to the Father's purposes, absolute reliance upon the Father. That is the attitude of Christ. And that's the gold standard. Once again, what's the whole point? We're supposed to be becoming more like Jesus. If we're becoming more like Jesus, his attitude is going to be seen in our attitude. And all of a sudden, it's not all about me. It's about him. It's about others. That statement, let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, is preceded by a whole bunch of stuff about relationships. And none of that stuff about relationships, put others first, seek others' welfare better than your own, put others above yourselves, all that stuff, none of that works unless you start with the attitude of Christ. So that's the standard. How do we have the attitude of Christ? By growing and maturing and becoming more like Him. As we become more like Him, His attitude will come out in the way we live. And it will impact our relationships. And it will impact our witness. And it will impact the life and heart and spirit of the church. 
when the attitude of Christ is the standard that we want to rise to. See, this whole idea of attitude is huge. Some people say that the book of Philippians is about joy. With all due respect, it's got a lot of great stuff about joy in it, but that's not what Philippians is about. Philippians is about Christ-likeness. That is the theme of this book. The theme of this book is Christ-likeness, and I hope I didn't just contradict something that Jeremy or Clint's been saying in this series. But the whole point of this book is what does it mean to look like Jesus? And where does that come from? Well, here's where it comes from. It comes from growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does that process work? It has to do with forgetting and reaching and pressing, and it has to do with Him laying hold of me for this purpose so that in Christ I can live in grace in front of the world and represent Him well. That's the idea. So last little bit, verse 17. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Two key words there, example and pattern. And they're, they're basically the same idea, just different words. But it's the same idea. We understand patterns, right? We understand patterns. In engineering, they might call it schematics. But it's a pattern. It's the pattern by which you're going to create this device, whatever it is. In, in architecture, we would call it um, blueprints. <laughs> but it's patterns. It's patterns. My wife is an expert seamstress. She, she has made dresses for weddings, for, for performing artists, for herself, for our daughter, for other people. I mean, She's made dresses and dresses and dresses and dresses and dresses. But the very first thing that has to happen before you can make that dress, even before you pick out the material you're going to make it out of, is you have to go and you have to get a pattern. And thankfully for the purpose of this illustration, that's what they actually call them. They call them patterns. So you go to the peace goods store or whatever, and they got racks and racks and racks of patterns, and you find the pattern that you want, and then you find the material that will best implement that pattern. It's a guide. And what Paul says, as we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we are becoming mature in Him, as we are growing in Christ-likeness, as that's happening, simultaneously, that is setting a pattern for others to follow so that they can also become more and more like Christ in their lives. And as they do that, that likewise sets a pattern so that others can follow that. And on and on and on it goes. As you are growing in Christ, you are not just being a witness to the world, you are being an example to other believers of what it looks like to be Jesus in the world today. To live His heart to live his values, to live his spirit, to live his attitude, his attitude, his attitude. Paul says there's got to be an example. And that's why in other places Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I've got to tell you, I've been doing public preaching now for like almost 45 years. 
which is weird because I'm only 30, but I mean, it's hard to imagine. But I have never felt comfortable with standing up and saying to, to a group, you want to be like Jesus? Just be like me. But you know what? The goal is to get to that point. Not so much where we claim that. Not so much where we, where we say, hey, I'm all that in a bag of chips. I mean, that's not the point. The point is, as we live in Christ, as we grow in Christ, we not only represent Him to the world, we set an example that others can follow in the same way so that they can grow like Christ and be a witness to the world and an example to others so that they can grow in Christ and become a witness to the world. And it just keeps going, and it's been going for 2,000 years. Our challenge is to keep moving that ball down the field by allowing the grace of God to form Christ in us for His glory, for our witness, and as an example to others. Paul never uses the word grace, but this is all about grace. It's all about grace. And it's all about grace because he's already made it abundantly clear that human performance doesn't work. What works is when God moves in our lives to shape us to look and act like Jesus. And in actuality, that is the goal of the Christian life. That is the goal of the Christian life. It's interesting how when we come across verses that we really like and we kind of latch onto those verses and we elevate them and we make them big and, and they deserve to be big, but that's okay. Sometimes when we make verses big, we forget the verse that comes right after them, which also ought to be big. We, we focus on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Great verse. Anybody who has a problem with that verse has a problem with God, okay? However, we lock in so hard on verse 16 that we don't pick up verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him would be saved. Man, that's a great verse. That is a great verse. We do the same thing with Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good, to them who love God and are called according to His purpose. And, and I tell you, that is a very present help in time of trouble. It's great. But we completely miss verse 29. For whom He called, He foreknew, and whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. That is the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that's what Paul is driving us to here. Paul is driving us to see God's great purposes accomplished in our lives as His grace and His provision and His Spirit work in us so that Christ is formed in our lives. So that our witness to the world 
is not just a collection of creeds and doctrines. It is a representation of the person of Jesus Christ. And our example to those coming along is not just a bunch of data. It's a living example of a living Christ who lived and died and lives again. That's the goal. And that's why years ago, when I was young in the faith, one of my favorite choruses, back before choruses were choruses, these were kind of pre-choruses, I guess. Just very simply, this chorus said, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like Him. All through life's journey, from earth to glory, all I ask to be like Him. That's what Paul's calling us to in Philippians 3. A journey of grace to becoming the finished product. A person who reflects and represents the heart and spirit of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank You. Not only that You would love us enough to redeem us, not only that You would love us enough to rescue us, not only that You would love us enough to save us, but also that You would love us enough to patiently, graciously, lovingly see Christ formed in us so that we could truly be the people that You long for us to be in Christ. Father, we thank You for, for someone like Paul who willingly admitted his own shortcomings and his own need for Your work in his life. Thank You that for this purpose You have laid hold of us. And thank You that You will accomplish this work. Thank You that having begun a good work in us, You will see it through until the day of Christ Jesus. Make us men and women who can look like Jesus to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.